John chapter 15, verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burnt. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. The word of the Lord. So we spend the last six weeks in the upper room with Jesus. This is the room where he had his final meal, Passover meal with the disciples prior to his arrest. In these chapters of John's gospel, the upper room represents great intimacy with the Savior. The crowds are gone. Even Judas Iscariot went in there, but Jesus sent him out because he did not belong. He had never received Jesus' word. The upper room is where Jesus is bringing his disciples closer to his heart than ever before. It was off limits to everyone else. It was easy for the crowds to be around Jesus, but few, few belonged in the upper room. And my question to you is, do you belong in the upper room? When someone's invited to someone's house or when you're invited to someone's house, you are rarely invited into their master bedroom, their main bedroom, right? Maybe they're giving you a tour of the house, right? Maybe you'll go in there briefly, but the main bedroom is sacred. It's off limits. Guests in your house, they spend time in your kitchen, in the living room, in the dining room, but the main bedroom is like the upper room. Now in our house, as our children have gotten older, uh, it's not unusual for Anne and I to go to bed and there's still a lot of activity in our house. You know, Rain and her fiance and Jet might be hanging out. And so a few months ago, Anne and I were getting ready to go to bed. It was probably 7 p.m. Uh, <laughs> kidding. 7.30. And so, um, <laughs> just kidding. No, it was later than that. And so we're, 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 we're getting in bed and we are in bed. And so the, the room was dark, but the door was open. And so Rain's fiance came up the stairs, which was the first time that we saw him on that level of a house. And so we called out to him. We said, Austin, come in. And so he came in and he sat at the foot of the bed. So I just want you to picture this, right? It's our bedroom. It's dark. The light's out. Ann and I are in bed and Austin is sitting right there at the foot of the bed. And then Rain came in, Jet came in. And when I hit the pillow, I am out fast. Do we have anyone like this? Okay. A couple. Yeah. I mean, I just, so I was probably like five minutes away from just checking out. And so we were chatting, we were in our bed, the, the, the room was dark and we were all aware that Austin was there, which is 
unusual for someone whose last name is not Morales to be in our bedroom uh, on our bed. So then our youngest child came in. Now, parents, you know that when you put your children down, you can still find them like everywhere in the house, right? Like you find them in the fridge, you find them in the family's heirloom closet. You're like, what are you doing here now? So she came in, she's not a little kid, but she came in and because it was dark, Anna said, have you noticed that Austin is here? And she was like, what? And then Jed, who's quite loud and funny said, there's an extra man in mom's and dad's bedroom, a bearded man. And so we all laughed, but we're all aware that this was a new development. You see, many people are invited into our house. Few are invited into our main bedroom. And as we're leaving the upper room with Jesus, because in the last chapter of chapter, last verse of chapter 14, Jesus says to his disciples, come now, let us leave. And they start moving toward the Kidron Valley and Gethsemane. Do you belong in the upper room with him? Where he bears his heart on his sleeve. And speaks with his disciples as with the closest of friends. And actually expects them to love him. He expects them to love him and not just things from him. He's explaining to them the mysteries of his union with them. When he says, I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. Do you belong in the upper room? Or are you simply happy to hang with the crowds? As your pastor, I want you to examine yourself. I think many of us are happy or at least just comfortable to simply hang with the crowds. But we don't want and we don't really want him to get that intimate, that close up and personal as in the upper room. And yet it's in the upper room. And in the rest of this discourse, as we shall see, where he shows us the extent of his love for us and the father's love for us and the spirit's ministry to us. Are you coming in all the way? Today, we're going to look at one of the most memorable metaphors describing our union with Christ, the vine and the branches. So let's begin with the meaning of of the vine. John 15 verse one, the Lord says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Verse five, I am the vine. You are the branches. The metaphor of the vine shows up in a number of places in the old Testament, particularly in the Psalms, Isaiah and Ezekiel. The vine represents the people of God and the vine dresser is God. Now, let me read you this poem from Isaiah chapter five about God's vine, God's vineyard. Isaiah five, verse one. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I tell you, 
What I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland and neither pruned nor cultivated. And briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress. In this poem we see that God chose the people of Israel as his vineyard. And he delighted in them. He dug it out. He cleared the ground. He planted it. He put a wall, built a wall around it. And yet this vineyard produced only bad fruit, not good fruit. God looked for justice, but what did he find? Bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but what did he hear? Cries of distress. Now Psalm 80 uses the same image to tell a similar story. As much as God devoted himself to his people, they did not devote themselves to him. They did not produce the fruit that he was looking for. And so when we come to John 15 and Jesus says, I am the true vine. Do you see? He's saying, I am the vine that will bring forth the fruit of justice, not bloodshed. The fruit of righteousness, not cries of distress. The vine that came before me was only a shadow. I am the true vine. Jesus is the true Israel. When you read the history of Israel in the Old Testament, whether from the point of view of the kings of Israel or from the prophet's point of view, it breaks your heart. The cycle of moral corruption and spiritual decline only gets worse. God calls out to his people and is constantly rebuffed. But in John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. The relationship between Jesus and his father is strong. One, nothing gets between them. In Isaiah 5, in that poem I read you, God says, what more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? You can hear God's heart breaking. The relationship between God and Israel was hostile. To change the metaphor, like a marriage gone bad. But all throughout the Gospel of John and really all the Gospels, Jesus only speaks of the Father with the deepest affection, the strongest unity, the most singular purpose. What the Father wants is what Jesus wants. Complete alignment. Finally, in Jesus, we have the vine that will yield the fruit that God is looking for. What Israel collectively failed to deliver, Jesus as the single seed from Abraham brought forth. The true vine. He will not shed the blood of others, but his own blood to bring forth the fruit of righteousness and justice. That's the meaning of the vine. Jesus is the true vine. And if he is the vine, what's our role? Let's look at our relationship to the vine, the nature of our relationship to the vine. John 15, verse 1. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. 
He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. So something quite amazing has happened in the configuration of God's people under the new covenant. Whereas in the old covenant, Israel, the people of Israel were were God's vine. They were the vine of God's delight. It's not like in the new covenant, God has a new kind of people. Jews and Gentiles who are now his vine. That's not what happens. No, in the new covenant, who is the vine? His son. Jesus is the vine. And Jesus, the son, as the vine, has branches. And we are the branches. And because Jesus, the vine, is faithful and obedient and honoring to the Father, we as the branches will also be faithful and obedient and honoring to the Father. Isn't this amazing? You see, the key to this whole image is that we are vitally connected to the vine. We are organically related to the vine. And so the key imperative, the key command in this whole passage, and this is an amazing passage. I hope you ponder it for many mornings this week. But the the key, the one command that he gives us is what? Remain in me. Remain in me. He says it again and again and again. So let's talk about remaining in Christ. Remaining in Christ is spiritual, ongoing, and organic. So let's talk about those briefly. It's a spiritual thing. To remain means to stay, to abide, to continue in the same state. The opposite of remaining is leaving, right? And so this is a spiritual activity. In the previous chapter that we just finished, Jesus had talked to them about the prince of the world, who is the devil. And he had told them that, He was going back to the Father, that Jesus was going back to the Father, but the devil was remaining in the world. And it would have been easy for them to go the way of Judas, who went with the devil. And so a concept that up until now had not had the importance that it now takes is their spiritual ability, the disciples' spiritual ability to remain in Jesus and for Jesus to remain in them. Because prior to that, Jesus was with them physically, right? And so it would have been strange if while Jesus still had a number of years to be on earth with his disciples, he said to them, remain in me. They would have looked at him a little bit strange and said, like, uh, that's what we're doing. We're here with you. We're not going anywhere. You see, what's pointed about this instruction now is that they must remain in him while he's away from them physically. You see, remaining in Jesus is a spiritual activity. It's the only mode that we have known in our relationship with Christ. The 11, the 11 disciples had Jesus with them physically and then only spiritually. We have only had him spiritually. 
And so it's a spiritual activity. Remaining in him, it's also ongoing. I mean, the very word remain entails ongoing, right? That's what you're doing. If you're remaining in the house, you're staying there. It's not like you're leaving the house. If you leave the house, then you're not remaining. It's, it, it, it entails ongoing. So what's he saying? Do not quit. Do not give up. Do not stop. Do not lose heart, even though you don't see me. He's been telling him, in a little while, you're not going to see me anymore. There are going to be other things that you're going to see that are going to seem more real, more enticing, more urgent, but remain in me as I remain in you. So it's an ongoing spiritual activity, but it's also organic. We are vitally connected to Jesus as a branch is to a plant. If we cease to be connected to him, then we're no longer remaining in him and we're no longer alive spiritually. So here's a question. How do we know that we're remaining in him? Since remaining in him is a spiritual, ongoing, and organic activity, how do I know that I'm doing it? Well, here Jesus is very helpful to us because he gives us great help. In verse 7, he says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you. If you remain in me and my words remain in you. So here he's explaining what it means to remain in him by giving us something more concrete. And that is his words. See, as a pastor, I'm really grateful for Jesus' instruction here. Because it would be difficult if I'm having a conversation with you one-on-one. It would be very difficult to discern whether you're remaining in Jesus or not. Just by looking at you. I, I don't know. I can't just look at you and say, you're remaining in Jesus. You're remaining. Oh, I'm not sure about you. But you, we don't know, right? Uh, well, I'm at church. Okay, that's good. But that does not mean that you're remaining in him. Lots of people go to church and they're not really in Christ. But see, his words are concrete. And he says, if, if you remain in me and my words remain in you. His words are like sap to a plant, carrying nutrients from the vine to the branches, nourishing our spiritual life, strengthening what is weak and sick or dying in us. His words are our food. Without them, we perish. And his words are concrete. So we can have a conversation around them. Let's take just even two topics that are contested in our culture, marriage and truth, right? So we can talk about his words. Do you believe him? Do you believe him when he says that marriage is a man leaving his parents and clinging to his wife for life? Do you believe him? Or do you look at that and say, oh, that's so traditional. That's so old fashioned. Or what about truth? Do you believe that there's something such as objective truth? And that Jesus is the only one who gives us access to it. Because he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Or do you embrace the spirit of our age that says everybody has their own truth. To speak of the truth, capital T, is a power play. Uh Uh-uh. And so, do you believe him? Do you believe his words? Are they in you? Because you see, there are people who call themselves Christians, but they affirm things that Jesus rejected, whether related to gender or sexuality or our view and use of finances or our care for the poor. And Jesus would say to you, 
If I'm to remain in you and you're to remain in me, my words, my words must remain in you. That's so helpful. It's so concrete. Because you see, it's not like we come to Jesus and it's one and done, right? We receive him by faith and then we move on with our lives, living in our own strength, chasing our own agenda. No, we must remain in the vine. He is divine and we must, he is divine and he is divine. Um, but he, we must remain in him as the true vine and we are the branches vitally connected to him. Now, what do healthy branches do? Yes, they bear fruit. So let's look at the outcome of remaining in the vine. The outcome of remaining in the vine. Listen, the focus on bearing fruit in this passage on remaining on Jesus is overwhelming. It's everywhere in the passage. Sometimes well-meaning Christians and even Christian leaders will say something to the effect of, I just want to be faithful to God. You know, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want to hear from Jesus' lips when I see him. I do too. Yes, that's a great thing. But we must remember that he said that. Well done, good and faithful servant in the context of a parable about abundant growth. And then when you add to that what he says here in John 15, we realize that he is paying attention. And he expects from us a faith that goes from faith to fruit. From faithfulness to fruitfulness, much fruitfulness. So let's briefly look at what this passage says related to bearing fruit. John 15 verse 1. Just pay attention because he says it so much. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. So the father as the gardener is paying attention to the branches in the vine looking for fruit. The gardener is looking. He's looking for fruit. And branches that bear no fruit, he cuts off. Now, that does not mean that you can lose your salvation. What it means rather is that there are many people who only have a loose association, a loose connection to Christ. Take, for example, Judas Iscariot. We don't have to go any farther than him. He spent a lot of time with Jesus, around Jesus, but he never received Jesus' word. He was never cleansed by his word. He did not belong in the upper room. But then the branches that do bear fruit, God prunes. And the result is that they're even more fruitful. Now, the pruning of a branch always involves some type of knife. And that can be painful. Verse 4. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So if we do not remain in Jesus, right? Because we, if we are branches that are scattered on the ground, disconnected from the vine, we are not going to be fruitful. We cannot bear fruit. I mean, you know this, right? I mean, branches that are all on the ground, disconnected from the tree, from a vine, from the plant, we know they die and or die or are about to die. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. 
Apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay, the first part of that verse is so encouraging. Because if the condition is met, the fruit is as certain as God. Do you see that? If the condition is met, the fruitfulness will follow. So what's the condition? Let's look at the condition of the verse. If you remain in me and I in you. That's the if. So that's the condition. What's the result? You will. It's not you might bear fruit. Let's see if you've been. No, you will bear fruit. Isn't that so encouraging? All we have to do is remain in Christ. God does the pruning and the fruitfulness follows. How amazing is that? But then he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And I've always found that verse so sobering. Do you hear him? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 8. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So bearing much fruit has the dual purpose of glorifying the Father and showing that we truly are his disciples. But did you see the focus on bearing fruit in these verses? I mean, it's everywhere. I feel like I was repeating myself because he was repeating himself. I mean, he says, bear fruit, bear much fruit. If you remain in me, you will bear fruit, bear much fruit to my Father's glory. I mean, he keeps saying it. So let me leave you with this thought. Those remaining in Christ divine bear much fruit. I mean... (laughs) That's pretty self-evident from the text, right? Those remaining in Christ divine bear much fruit. He is certain of it. And I love his certainty. I love how certain Jesus is of the fruitfulness of his followers. He's confident. And look at the results from a handful of followers to the largest movement around the world across cultures in history. From the most shameful death to the most exalted man ever. From skeptics and proud, religious and liberal, wealthy and connected to all, bowing before their maker. See, Jesus, even while he acknowledged that as his word was spread openly, much of it would fall on rocky and thorny soil, he also rejoiced. That when his word fell on good soil, it would produce 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. He was certain of it. Those remaining in Christ the vine bear much fruit. Don't you love that he turns graves into gardens? Mourning to dancing. Can we praise him that he gives beauty for ashes? Can we praise him for this? If you are vitally attached to him... You have seen him do this. And you have seen him bear incredible fruit in your lives. I've seen it already in so many of you. It's beautiful. So here's a great question for us. How does this fruit come about in our lives? How does this fruit come about in our lives? Well, we've already seen that we must remain in Christ. I've never met a Christian who is vitally connected to the vine Because his words were in them. That was not bearing fruit. Never seen that before. No. They are growing. They are curious. They have energy. They are fighters. They take their fight. Not to the people in their lives. That's what the world does. They fight with each other. No. They take their fight to their flesh. 
And the flesh is the part of our humanity that is corrupted. And that's where they take the fight. They declare war against their flesh. They study the scriptures, but they also study their flesh. They're not afraid to ask, why do I do what I do? Have you ever asked yourself that question? That's a difficult question to answer. It takes a lot of humility, sometimes a lot of help. The Lord is very patient. But why do I do what I do? One of the things that Anna and I have done through the years in parenting our children, when they've done something wrong, is we send them back to the room or somewhere to reflect on why, why they did whatever it is that they did. Because that's more important than the thing they did. And so they'll go, and then they'll come back and they'll say something like, I did it because I am a sinner, which is a good answer. Because we want them knowing that they are sinners in need of a savior. Sometimes children growing up in a Christian home don't become Christians because they don't grow up knowing that they are sinners in need of a savior. They grow up believing that they are stars in need of a place, context, or people to shine on. And so we want our children to know that more fundamental than anything else about who we are as humans is that we are sinners in need of a savior. And so that's a good answer. And yet it's not sufficient. It's not sufficient because that's like you going to the doctor and saying to the doctor, doctor, I am sick. The doctor's going to look at you and say like, I sure hope so. Or else we're wasting each other's time. What's your sickness? What are your symptoms? Then you can start getting somewhere. Do you see? So it's wonderful when the children come back and say something like, I said something mean because I wanted to provoke my sibling." Or, I did not listen to your instructions because I did not care. Okay. Now we're getting somewhere. Now. That's how you get to know your flesh. And it's the only way. Listen. It's the only way that we will ever come to hate our flesh. Hate our temptations or our motivations that are not godly, our beliefs that are distorted or twisted or wrong. It's the only way we'll come to hate these things in ourselves. Psalm 36 verse 2 says that we flatter ourselves too much to detect or hate our sin. So we need to stop the flattery. <laughs> we need to, that should become a hashtag. Hashtag stop the flattery. And we start telling on ourselves. We just start telling. Wouldn't that be good? Charlie helped me with this a couple of months ago. You know, we were talking about hospitality and how important hospitality is to the mission of Christ, the opening of our homes and our lives to people who are far from him. And we were talking about how in our culture, we have such a Martha Stewart mentality where everything has to be so perfect and so beautiful or else we don't have anybody over. So what do we do? We end up not having anybody over because it's too much work. Do you relate to this? I know many of you do. And so I was sharing with Charlie how Anna does an amazing job keeping the house. Incredible. But we have different standards of cleanliness and beauty. To me, the house always looks good. Always. I mean, I'll go to work and I'll come back from work and Anna will have spent all kinds of time cleaning the house or cleaning a bedroom. And then she'll tell me, Honey, do you see what I did? And I will look around and I'm like, oh man, I know there's a right answer here. And my brain will be empty and I'm like, oh, and I'm like, yeah, can I have a hint? Uh, did you move a lamp? I mean, I'm like, I got nothing. 
because the house always, I mean, she, it looks amazing, but it looked amazing to me before I left, but not to her. So when we have someone coming over, she feels incredible pressure to make the house look good. But I'll say to her, babe, it looks good to me. And I'll think I'm helping. Yeah. <laughs> but Charlie said, what you need to say in those moments is, honey, how can I help? <laughs> Ouch. And I said, you're right, right? He is right, you know, but that's more difficult because now I have to die to my selfishness and help. But those are the moments. This is how we begin to see our flesh, detect our sin, and begin to hate it. And the result is growth, fruit, much fruit, all to the Father's glory. Listen. The pruning knife of God is loving and painful. Jesus says, every branch that does bear fruit, the father prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Do you see this? If you remain in Christ, that means that you are fruitful, which means that God's going to prune you for even more fruit. There's no way of getting around this. Take, for example, Jesus delaying his journey to Bethany, to the house of Mary and Martha when their brother Lazarus was sick. And he delayed going. In fact, he did not go and get there until after Lazarus had died. A few days later, and Mary and Martha are in tears. They're in pain. They are grieving. They felt the edge of the father's knife. Why did Jesus do this? Why did he delay his coming? So that when he said to them, I am the resurrection and the life, they could grasp it. Because more important than not losing their brother was knowing that Jesus is true life. Do you have a category for this? For coming under God's pruning knife? Or do you only have a category for avoidance of hardship? Because that is so much where we can live. Just avoiding, trying to control everything in our lives, in our environment, fearful that something horrible is going to happen. We only have a category for avoiding hardship. If you're hardship, I'm staying away from you. But do you have a category under trial, under hardship to say, I'm in pain. I feel the knife, but even more so my father's loving hand that holds it. Think of Jesus. He felt the knife of our salvation, our sins piercing into his body. The father's face turned away from him so that we could Feel the embrace of God forever and receive the sweetness of his love. Do you belong in the upper room with the Savior? If so, you must be able to also receive 
the father's pruning. And so I want you to ask yourself, if you look at your life and you feel like you don't see growth, you don't see fruit, ask yourself, is it because you're not in the vine? You're not remaining in Jesus. Or is it because even though you are in the vine, you flatter yourself too much to detect or hate your own sin. You study the scriptures, but you don't study your flesh. That's much harder. Or is it because you run from the father's pruning? Ask yourself these questions. These are important questions for all of us to answer. Now this week, I want us to do something really encouraging. I want you to find someone that you know really well, grab time with them. And if you can't grab time, text them. And I want you to text them and tell them the many ways that you see fruit in their lives. Would you do that? We should do that for each other. Because here's the thing. Sometimes it can be so difficult for us to see the work of God in our lives. And all we see is the pruning. We're like, oh God, you're pruning me so much. Ouch, ouch, ouch. Lord, please stop the pruning. And it's difficult for us to see the fruit. So we need to help each other see the fruit. So find someone you know well and tell them the many ways that you see the fruit in their lives from remaining in Christ. Can we do that? Yes. Let's do this. But do not use this encouragement to slip in a critique. You know how we can do that? It's like, Billy, your patience is amazing about time, right? Like, don't do that. Don't do that to Billy. Okay. Now, if you are considering the claims of the Christian life, but you've not given your life over to Christ, I want you to think for a minute about what he says in verse five, when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And I wonder if you, that's a strong claim. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I wonder if you feel it though. I wonder if you feel its intensity. If you don't flatter yourself too much, can you see and feel the emptiness in your own life? Whether you're quite satisfied or quite dissatisfied with how your life has turned out, do you feel the emptiness of your soul? Because that's what Jesus means. Apart from me, you can do Nothing, nothing that satisfies your deepest longings, nothing that answers your deepest need, nothing of lasting value. And if that's you, I so hope that you will talk to someone, maybe someone who invited you here, talk to one of us pastors, but we'd be so happy to talk with you about Christ and help you understand how, what it means to remain in him and to be in him. Those remaining in Christ divine bear much fruit. May we all as a church be abundantly fruitful. All to the Father's glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we love you. And we give you thanks for your word, for the power of your word. Lord, this passage is so deep. It has so many layers, Lord. Help us reflect on it and grow from it. I pray, Lord, for those who are here and they're, they're not in the vine. Maybe they think they're in the vine, but they're not. Because your word is not in them. Lord, would you help them 
Would you bring to them conviction of their sin that they may see where they're offending you, where they're living their own way rather than listening to the words of Christ? Would you bring them so they may truly be in the vine? Father, I pray for those who are simply learning about what this means. Would you help them to come to faith, to come to you? Would you give them the humility to not flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their own sin? The many ways that they have offended you and have been selfish toward others. Lord, help all of us who are in the vine, who, who have the words of Jesus. Thank you for forgiving us through that word. Thank you for washing us clean by his death. Help us remain in the vine. Prune us, O oh God. And give us the strength that we need and the grace that we need when that pruning is painful. But Lord, we long for the greater fruitfulness that is going to bring you much glory. We love you. We thank you for Jesus who is the vine, the true vine, who brings forth the good fruit that you've always looked for in humanity. Thank you that it's through him and in him that we find ourselves perfect before your eyes. In his name we pray. Amen.